Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Please note, this episode contains description of reporting on issues such as rape and cruelty to children that some listeners may find distressing. You're listening to Justice, a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system with me, prison philanthropist, and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talked to Danny Shaw, Head of Strategy and Insight at Crest Advisory, and previously Home Affairs Correspondent at the BBC. We cover the importance of responsible journalism and why terminology matters when reporting on crime. I'm Danny Shaw. Uh, I am Head of Strategy and Insight at Crest Advisory, which is a criminal justice consultancy, uh, does research on crime, policing, justice issues. And for 31 years before I joined Crest, uh, I worked for the BBC. And for most of that time, for most of that time at the BBC, I was covering home affairs stories as home affairs correspondent. And that's everything from crime to the courts, to policing, to criminal justice, to prisons and probation, immigration, security, counterterrorism, the whole works right across the, the sort of the subject areas covered by the Home Office and the Ministry of Justice. So a small brief. A small brief, yeah. I didn't really have <laughs> Quite very much to do. Quite an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. And what led you into that world? Because it's quite a niche sort of area I imagine to be sort of working in and quite depressing at times. Yes, it's, it can be pretty grim. Uh, I mean, look, I started off because I wanted to be a journalist um, from quite a young age and I got into journalism. I don't think my idea when I got into journalism was that I wanted to cover crime or prisons. Um, but I think as I went on in my career, you realise firstly that you have to specialise. If you want to really get on, you need to specialise in a subject area. And I began to cover some court cases. Um, one of the court cases I covered was the comedian Craig Charles, uh, who was accused and acquitted uh, of rape. And I remember covering that Southwark Crown Court, absolutely fascinating experience. And, you know, all the sort of the excitement of, of covering a court case where people's lives are, you know, hanging in the balance. Mm. And tell me how that works, because, you know, so many people listening won't have any idea of you as a journalist. So what, you walk through the same door as everybody else? And where do you sit? And what can you do? What can't you do? It depends on the courtroom. Um, Southwark Crown Court, everyone goes in the same entrance. Everyone goes in the front entrance. The public, journalists, um, uh, witnesses, jurors, I think, all go in the front entrance, which is not really ideal. Then there are, you know, different when you after the lobby area, after you've been searched, then there are sort of different 
corridors, depending on who you are. But Southwark Crown Court is quite unusual in that in the courtroom itself, the public actually sit on benches at the back in the same area as reporters who are covering the case. Um, in a lot of courts, and particularly in more sort of old-fashioned courts, there's a public gallery above the courtroom, above the sort of well of the court, um, where the public go and reporters have their own sort of press benches. I mean, the rules for court reporting are essentially if things are said in front of the jury while the jury are in court, you can report them. If they're not said when the jury's there, uh, then you've got to have, you've got to be careful, you've got to have an understanding about what you can say and what you can't say. Because otherwise, who will sort of tell you off, as it were? Well, the judge, clearly. Right, um, well, you could but be only if trouble. he reads the article that you write. Yeah, or... essentially, um, you have to be very careful about not prejudicing the proceedings um, and, let's say, referring to a subject or referring to facts which the jury may not know about or aren't going to be uh, introduced as evidence in front of a jury. So, you know, you will go to a, a court hearing to cover it and there may well be legal argument, discussions about legal issues that are not in front of the jury and they may be really interesting and fascinating. You can take notes, but what you cannot do is then go and publish that material. You, you can't tweet it, you can't put it on a website, you can't publish it in a newspaper or broadcast it. Right. But if you did, say, tweet something about it, it would just then come down to someone hopefully noticing that you are breaking the rules, as it were. Yeah, I mean, look... I guess uh, what I'm trying to guess at is, do people do that and they get away with it all the time? Some some people might get away with it, but uh, more often than not, someone will pick up on a tweet. Right. Uh, I, I mean, particularly if, you, if you're a reporter who's covering the courts... Uh, you will be picked up on if you broadcast something or if you tweet something. Um, someone will see it and it will probably get back to, to the authorities. So that's one aspect that you have to be very careful of in court reporting. You've got to know what the rules are, uh, what you can report and what you can't report. But in general terms, when the jury's there, you're on you're on safer ground. But then, of course, there may be restrictions on certain names, some witnesses, perhaps... Um, well, you know, you can't name them if they're under eighteen and they're in the proceedings. Uh, you you can't refer to you can't refer to them or identify them at all. So there's all sorts of rules and regulations that, and and in a way, that's why, you know, in recent years with the with the advent of social media and everyone's got an opinion on social media, everyone's got a Twitter account or an Instagram account or whatever. That's why it's become a lot more hazardous because people can just put things up there. And there's no filter. There's no one in the newsroom. There's no one in the newsroom saying, "Ah, hang on a minute, you check that. Can we run that past the lawyer? It just goes straight out there. And that's why you sometimes get people um, who, you know, are up for contempt of court. Right. And when you're sitting there taking your notes, I presume, is that good old fashioned pen and paper? Or are you allowed to take your gadgets into court? You cannot record anything in a courtroom. That is strictly forbidden. No tape recorders, no... Um, no phones recording anything. No, um, but you could take no a laptop cameras. in to make your notes. You are allowed to take laptops and phones. You know, you're, you are allowed now to use them in court okay. for the purposes of tweeting or sending copy back to you know to your newsroom, um, taking notes. You can do that. I mean, you can also use a notebook and take notes in shorthand if your shorthand's still up to scratch, uh, which mine is 
a long time ago sort of has <laughs> fell into fell into dis, uh, disrepair after you know I passed my shorthand exams I did my hundred words a minute and then I didn't really use it enough so it's just disappeared it's disappeared sadly <laughs> um or you just take notes by hand and hope that you you get the quotes right right so that's the courts. Then what about giving us an idea of um, sort of covering stories from prisons and access to prisons and how that might have changed under different justice secretaries and maybe where we are today with it? Look, getting access to prisons is incredibly difficult if you're a reporter. Really, really hard. Does it, it basically not happen anymore? It It does happen, but in very limited circumstances. It is not like if you're a health reporter and you want to go into a hospital or a GP surgery, you know, you probably make a couple of calls and you, you know, you'd get in. Um, it is not like that with prisons at all. Uh, obviously, you know, you've got security implications. Um, but I think also there are political implications uh, of reporters going into prisons and seeing what the reality is like in prison and then reporting that. And that's why it's very, very tightly controlled. Now, when I started out covering home affairs in the late 90s, there used to be a practice of when there was a prison inspection report, the media would get invited to the prison. Um, they would meet the prison inspector who'd, who'd written the report. The governor would be there to respond and you'd perhaps be shown around. That just doesn't happen anymore. I, I mean, that that's... 20, 25 years ago, that just does not happen anymore. And was there something in particular that you think just made them go, right, <laughs> this has to stop? Did it coincide with a decline of conditions or what do you I, think it was? I think it was um, under the Labour government, the 97 Labour government, they realised that law and order, criminal justice was a huge issue for voters and a political hot potato and they needed to get sort of more control over it. Um, and so those sorts of uh, visits by the media came to an end and any visits by the media to prisons were very tightly controlled. So, for example, if a minister was going to go and see a new education centre that had just opened, um, you know, lots of shiny desks and, you know, great new facilities, then, of course, they take the media along um, and, the, you know, the media would see these great education facilities because that's the story that they wanted to put out there. And, uh, you know, that would be OK in terms of, you know, from, from their point of view, in terms of coverage, you're seeing prisons, but you're seeing a sort of good, a good story out of it. Now, of course, we in the media would say, well, we want to see a wing. We want to see B wing because we've heard that there's been some problems there or we want to talk to some prisoners and find out what life is really like. Never mind your new education classroom. What's it really like? And that's when you get attention on those visits because they might handpick a couple of prisoners who are happy to talk to the media and inevitably there'll be the prisoner who's just coming to the end of their sentence and they've got a job, a job lined up. Time. Yes, exactly, <laughs> you know, or the one who's who's the librarian, who's, you know, Mr Goody Two-Shoes or whatever. Um, so there's always that tension between them trying to control the visit, um, give you access only to the people they want to, and you as, as a journalist probing... Um, asking difficult questions. Um, and I think that's why when the story then comes out, the story isn't all about their lovely, shiny new education classroom. It's about the terrible facilities or the fact that, you know, this prisoner, um, uh, I don't know, uh, committed an act of violence and it, 
didn't get picked up because you've heard about that from someone. You know, there's some there's some story there that the government doesn't really want out there. So things were very, very tightly controlled. Now, it ebbs and flows with different justice secretaries. Um, there was definitely a, I would say, a sort of a tightening under Chris Grayling. Um, and then with Michael Gove, we, you know, we certainly got in a little bit more to prisons and then, you know, it sort of, it kind of stopped uh, for a while un under subsequent uh, justice secretaries. But the real difference was under Rory Stewart. Um, when David Gork was justice secretary, Rory Stewart was prisons minister, suddenly we were getting inv invites to see prisons, you know, on a monthly basis. We were right. getting what they called facilities in, in media jargon, um, the minister's going up to see this prison or or we want you to go and see the new x-ray scanner right. uh, that's being uh, that's being unveiled and we were getting into prisons and seeing things and he really really opened it up and that was because the minister took an active interest in prisons Rory Stewart was probably the most engaged prisons minister that I can remember and he also believed that the public needed to see what went on and understand what went on and understand the problems. They do pay for these places yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day. So so he didn't want to shut the media sense. out. And it was it was very welcome. I mean, it, it did get to a point where it was like, oh, we've, we've just, we've got, the Ministry of Justice are on the line. They're offering another facility on Friday at some <laughs> prison in far-flung parts of England. Uh, we haven't really got anyone to go there, but we don't really want to turn down the opportunity. You know, it was almost got... Not quite, but almost at the level where it was like, okay, too many visits. You know, almost too, too many visits. <laughs> I mean, you know, but but and and I fear it sort of slipped back now, and it's it's become a rarity again. Yeah. So, what would the process be now? So, say there was, uh, God forbid, a riot in a in a prison, and you wanted to go and do some reporting. Um, what's the line? Do you have to sort of get hold of the press office at the Ministry of Justice and request that you can? Have access or look, you're not going to get access, Edwina, to a prison that's just had a riot. Right. That is never ever going to happen. No. Um uh you know, we've had some riots in previous years, and I don't think no. they've given the media access at all. You might see a smuggled video or smuggled photo from a prisoner from a a mobile phone, and that gets used. Um I can't remember there being any facilities at all where they want to um, tell you what's or show you what's what's happened. Yeah. Um, if a prison, the prison inspectors go in perhaps afterwards, they've begun to sort of take more photographs and put photographs in some of their reports so you can see some of the some of the the conditions and so on. But that it just wouldn't happen. The no, only it... possibility is if if the prisoners recovered, and let's say it's a year on or two years on, and things are looking much more positive, new governors come in, inspection reports better, then they might invite you in and say look what we've done, look how things have improved. That might happen. Right. But if the, I mean, it might be a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because they're usually the best questions. Um, would you want to go in if a sort of riot was happening? And I only ask that because obviously people report from the front line in wars. Of course um, you would. Of course you would. I mean, you get, you, you know, you, you would worse, as a reporter, but... <laughs> you, as a reporter, you'd get as close as possible for riots going on. You, you know, you'd have to have someone outside the prison. So at least just sort of gives a sense that you're there and, Possibly people will come out, you can talk to them. Um, but of course you'd want to go in. Yeah, of, of course you'd want to see for yourselves just how bad the the destruction has been or the damage mm. has been caused. But I can't remember that ever happening. No, and probably never will. Um, so when it comes to uh, the police then, what type of 
access do you need there? Because again, quite a different environment to the courts, obviously a different environment to the prisons. Can you give us a sense of what reporting looks like? Because I suppose you have the police custody suites, which are a bit more kind of prison-y, if you like. Um, but then, of course, it's out on the street talking to people and, you know... Could you give us a sense of yeah, how I mean, that works? It, it's obviously it's it's different because you see the police around you, um, you know, because they're in city centres, there are events that you go to. Um, and as a reporter, you can, nothing to stop you going up and talking to a police officer. Um, but if you introduce yourself as a reporter, more likely than not, they're not going to tell you very much um, or they're probably likely to be quite wary of you. Um so you have to request access to talk to to talk to a, a police officer about a particular issue or a subject or a crime that's taken place. You essentially have to request access through the press office of the of the of the police force, um, and that can be a difficult process. And sometimes they won't give you access. Sometimes they don't want their person to talk to you, or sometimes they'll ask you for what questions you want to ask, and they'll email the questions, and then they'll email you answers back. So. It's pretty tightly controlled. Um, you know, in terms of access to a police station, um, again, it's, you know, if there's a facility, if there is a reason to go and see the control room because you're doing a piece about 999 calls or something like that or about how police operate their communication system or if you were doing a piece about new procedures for dealing with mentally ill people in custody and you wanted to film a a custody suite, you'd have to put in a request through the press office and that would go to the local police force and they'd weigh it up. And they get huge numbers of requests. I mean, they're inundated with media requests for all sorts of access, for interviews with detectives on previous investigations and ongoing crimes. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a more fluid process, more sort of um, kind of every day or every week that, you, that you're in touch and and obviously access is easier. Um, you know, police want to, let's say, show you what they're doing about tackling drugs. So they'll take you on a drugs raid in the morning and you might get an invitation a couple of days before, you know, meet us at police station at, um, for a briefing at 5 a.m. And we'll be out, you know, 6 o'clock, 6.30, you know, knocking on people's well, bashing in doors, you know, yeah. always makes for great Knocking, footage. sort of, yeah. <laughs> storming through. I mean, a lot of crime pieces start with that. You, you'd probably be familiar with that. It starts with the bang, 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 you know, yeah. please open up, you yeah. know, and in they go. And, um, you know, and that comes from journalists being invited out into a raid. It hasn't just happened, but it's been sort of carefully planned. And is there sort of from the prisons, police, courts, is there an area that sort of you enjoy covering the most or do you feel that sort of one area has more importance than the other or? Look, they're, they're all important areas. I mean, courts have the, the drama. Um, and I bet the Crown Courts in particular. The, the Crown Courts, the big cases that I don't think you can compare you know, some of the other things that I've covered in terms of the drama of a you are seeing before your eyes literally is someone going to be found guilty or not mm. are they going to go to prison for the rest of their life or not and it's is sort of victim, gladiatorial isn't it yeah is the victim going to get their day in court you see the moments of the evidence uh that can be incredibly emotional very dramatic people losing their temper you know uh, you see everything played out in a court and and in a way one of the great things about court reporting is when the jury is there 
or in a case when someone's pleaded guilty, so you can then report what's being said, you can report it. And it all comes out. And so all the allegations that people make in court, in front of the jury, they are all reportable. You know, you've got to be so careful in your other reporting in general when people make allegations against people about what you're saying. But in, a, in court, you have a licence, if you like, to report that as long as the jury is there um, or someone's been convicted so there's no jury trial and then, then it's in open court. Um, so you can't beat that. But having said that, um, you know, pr going into prison it is always fascinating experience is always an eye-opener a real real eye-opener and you know I'm very aware that so many people who cover this or who comment who commentate on it um, journalists and others don't haven't seen what goes on in prisons aren't aware of it so you're seeing something other people don't we've all had probably experiences with with police officers we've all you know called the police one time or another perhaps been a witness probably been a victim of a crime so we have some experiences of that we you know, probably very few of us have actually seen inside of a prison and what really goes on and talked to prisoners for an extended length of time. Mm. And out of the cases that you've covered, so Operation New Tree, the Jill Dando case, 7-7 seven, seven bombings, to name but a few, how do you stop yourself from it kind of eating away at you or sitting in court and actually hearing really upsetting things? I've sat in Crown Courts and you've got the victim's family and then the sort of defendants and usually they're sat with prison officers and when they're sent down you see the looks on the parents face sometimes or like I have in court and just the whole thing is just so unbelievably upsetting I can't imagine doing that sort of all the time um so how do you when you're having to live it and breathe it and write about it and think about it and you're sort of marinated in it how do you sort of look after yourself in that sense I think you have to you have to emotionally a little bit cut yourself off from it. Otherwise you, you, otherwise you would not be able to do that job. Um, if you get caught up in the emotion of it, whether it's something that makes you angry or whether it's something that upsets you, how would you be able to focus on taking your notes, thinking about what the, the story is, what the line is, and then writing it up, and then perhaps going doing a broadcast right there and then outside court? You couldn't possibly do that. So you've got to remain detached. Having said that, you know, I'm a human being like, you know, everyone else. And, you know, I've sat and sometimes listened to some evidence and it's, it chokes you up. Um, and there are also times when you just, you're just full of hatred for, or disbelief for the person that's committed this awful crime or just contempt because of just the way that they're just lying and you can just see right through it. Um, and I suppose that that's where at the end of the day, you know, you have those discussions. I don't know, you take it home and you have those discussions or you talk to your colleagues afterwards about it. I mean, it is grim. It is grim. And, you know, perhaps that's one of the reasons why it was sort of time to sort of get off the treadmill um, from doing that. Uh, because, yeah, it's just, you know, the the grief of people who've lost loved ones or have had the most terrible harm inflicted on them over and over again in different settings um kind of does you know does absolutely get you yeah and it's hard not to put yourself in their shoes sometimes isn't it and that's the bit that I always have to be careful of and having you know small children and certain crimes mm. and you have to kind of 
go, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. And I literally do a sort of mental switch in my head and I'm like, think about something else. It's cruelty. Cruelty against children in particular is uh, just, you know, something I just really just find really, really difficult. Um, uh, And yeah, and there was one case in particular, and I won't go into the, the, all the details of it, but um, it, there were a couple who were accused of, 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 of murdering um, a, um, uh, a young girl. And that was obviously horrendous enough. But there was also a pattern of child cruelty. And previously, this girl had suffered a terrible injury to her shoulder and she'd been off school for a couple of weeks and I remember the evidence from a specialist, medical specialist, saying that the amount of pain that she would have been in for those those two weeks, and it was just it was just that 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 brought it home that they just allowed that to, that that they had been responsible for that, and then knowing that they'd done that and the pain that she must have been in for those two weeks, I you know that was just. Uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's things like that. It, it, it hurts your brain. You know, in a way, it's just like it? you know, because you know what it's like when you've got a child and they're in pain or they're upset. Yeah. And you, you know, they're, oh, they're ill. To... You know, they're ill, and they're, they're crying and whatever, and you, you know, all the rest of it. And then just to think of that. Yeah. Just, yeah. Does it make you? Because it always makes me kind of go, "What on earth has happened to these people to make them be able to do something like this?" Yeah. Yeah, um, you do. You do think. What sort of person are yeah, you? Yeah. How that, do you become? How do you become that? I mean, I do think that um, we don't give enough thought to that. We, we, you know, we. This isn't about uh, deflecting responsibility from people who've committed the most awful crimes. Absolutely not. They need to be punished. They need to go to prison so that society is protected. And that they are punished, um, and you know, if there's a possibility of rehabilitation, it's not about deflecting blame from them. But we need to understand why people do these things, what the triggers are, what the specific triggers are. And there is a sort of tendency for us to kind of wrap up a case. Oh, that's it. Been found guilty. Twenty years in prison. Job done. You know, that's it. Let's forget about that individual. Let's not even mention their name. You know, we need to understand why they do this, because if we don't understand that and have a, you know, we're never going to prevent it. Yeah. And particularly, I think um, what's been at the forefront of my mind and I think everyone's minds sort of more recently with the violence against women and girls strategy and sort of various things that have happened in the media recently, um, sort of serious violent sexual offences. And yes, someone might go to prison for 20 years, 25 years as a life sentence. Right. Um, And nothing at all is done in that 20 years for them to be able to come out maybe in a position where they don't want to do that anymore Mm. because Mm. actually the interventions for sex offenders are very very few and far between so if i hear more people talking about investing in streetlights and making parks safer well, parks don't rape and attack women. It's the men in the parks that rape and attack women. So actually what we need is for those men to not want to rape and attack women. And that is not going to happen until we invest in interventions and programs for them to be able to heal and address their offending behaviour. That is never, ever talked about in the media. 
Well, I think, uh, I don't know that I would agree with you, Edwin. I mean, I think we do, you know, I think the media does focus a bit on on talking about the effectiveness of, of programmes and getting onto programmes. But I the think, problem is there aren't very many programmes at all. Well, I think one of the, I mean, if you're talking specifically about sex offenders. Um, yeah, in this case. in You know, we had, this country had the sex offender treatment programme. Yes. Right, you're coming yes. on to one of my sort of bugbears. <laughs> okay, okay, go for it. So this was lauded as a treatment scheme for sex offenders that works. It's been proven to work. I think it began in the early 1990s and it was expanded, expanded, expanded. You will know that the Ministry of Justice commissioned research um, probably about 10 years ago now, something like that, um, eight, ten years ago, to actually try and evaluate whether it was having an impact and what the research found was that it was at the people who went on that course were actually slightly more likely to reoffend than those who didn't. And when that research was presented to the Ministry of Justice, there was a huge row internally, disbelief, this can't be right, the research must have been done in the wrong way. Anyway, this this row, this new methods were introduced to try and do it differently. Da, 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 da. And actually the final piece of research that that the Ministry published showed that actually this this was correct. It made offenders more likely to reoffend. That process went on for five years. And during those five years, sex offenders were still doing that program. Now, I personally, I think that's a huge scandal. It has come out. It has There has been some coverage and publicity, and I've, I've written about it uh, and, and broadcast about it. And the problem is that it is very, very difficult a, to evaluate these sorts of courses in a really meaningful way and B, to do it in a sort of timescale um, that's reasonably quick um, because, you know, you have to take a cohort, a decent cohort of people, you then have to put them through the programme and you then have to do a follow-up over, you know, a period of time after they've been released from prison. That all takes time. Then you've got to do the research and do the analysis. So I think one of the problems is there are a lot of schemes that are being used in prison and perhaps not as many as you would like and perhaps access isn't as good as you would like them to be, but a lot of them are untested. They might be accredited, but that doesn't mean that they're evaluated. Now, we're talking today, the Ministry of Justice has published today the results of a scheme called Resolve, which is for violent offenders. It's a cognitive behavioural therapy style programme and the headline finding from that, and this is the Ministry of Justice's own finding, is that it makes no difference in terms of um, violent reoffending rates, reoffending rates in terms of violence. Okay. They did a control group and they did a group who were on the programme. And that's the problem. That, you know, that is the problem. So I, of course, we want people to go to prison and while they're in prison to have some rehabilitation, to have some programmes that address their offending behaviour so that they're they're less likely to reoffend when they come out. Of course we do. We all want that. My concern is that sort of there's a bit of an industry around some of these programmes and we've got to be very careful about just putting someone on a programme. Yeah, and it comes back to who writes them and getting the right people to... Yeah, uh, yeah. To and I think, I think what went wrong with the sex offender treatment programme is that it probably started out that it was effective because it was being done by a small group of people who were experts in, in it. So they were running the programmes, they knew exactly what they were doing. And then as it was as it expanded, it was diluted. And 
I mean, I, I remember going into, I won't name the prison, but a few years ago I went into a prison um, that was uh, specifically for sex offenders. It was almost predominantly sex offenders prison. And I talked to a couple of people who were running the therapeutic program for the sex offenders. And I was a bit shocked um, at sort of what I felt was a sort of level of experience that they had to deal with people who can be very manipulative and very damaged and potentially dangerous people. And that, that really concerned me. I thought, have you really got the right level of experience to be running these courses? Yeah, it's a tricky one. <laughs> um, back on to the sort of journalistic side of things um, again. You know, I'm interested in responsible journalism, having just finished my own master's, actually, and my thesis was around the media portrayal of female victims of rape. And of course, you know, we band this term around of the media, don't we, as though it's like one thing. And my husband, who's in that work, always is at pains to point out to me that there's very different sections of the media. Um, so can you say a little bit about responsible journalism and what that actually is and try and sort of break down this the media thing that we all tend to and I'm slightly guilty of well the media is a huge thing isn't it <laughs> yeah I mean the media is everything from you know BBC 10 o'clock news to um the order shot gazette if there is a gazette in order <laughs> shot I don't know but Probably. it's everything from that to that and everything in between Twitter online forums radio. um well Twitter is a sort of a, a forum for people to post their views. I wouldn't, you know, it's social media, isn't it? So you've got mainstream media, you've got social media. So it's this huge thing. Um, so that's the first thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but if, if you're talking about organisations that are publishing journalistic material, proper journalism, um you know, there, I think there are a few basic things. Um, first of all, your material has got to be... Um, it's got to be impartial in the sense, I, I think, in the sense that you give weight to to the key, the key sides, both sides of the debate. And that doesn't mean that um, you can't take a position on something or you can't have a stance on racism, for example, and you give balance to people who are racist of course it doesn't mean that there are certain things that are given um but you know if you're talking about um uh, prison budgets and you've got a you've got something that you're writing saying prison budgets aren't high enough they've been falling da, da, da. well there's a counter opinion that may be from the minister of justice that will want to put that and i think that your articles and your your broadcasts are stronger for the fact that you are taking into account different opinions. Um, I think, you know, that actually gives them more weight rather than if you're just running something without that sort of balance. Do you get trained in that? You know, because it, that seems like quite a skill. Or do you have to seek out your own training in in order to be able to write well, well and in a balanced manner? Because, you know, when you look at certain tabloid newspapers... Um, you read things, you just go, oh, my God, I mean, what, what is this? You know, who on earth has written this and how on earth is it allowed to be printed, you know? <laughs> is that, well, look, am I saying something out of turn? No, I mean, look, it, you know, I, I did training, I did journalist uh, training course, as did, 
you know, the vast majority of the people that work in the mainstream media, let's say, um, who are reporting on, on, on the issues that, that we're talking about. And, of course, you are taught you've got to get balance. You've got to get um, uh, another opinion. You should try and get a range of opinion if you can. Um, and that's a really important that's a really important feature. And if you're doing a major investigation and making serious allegations, then you have to give the person who's who you're making allegations against a right of reply, and that has to be in a particular period of time. You can't just give them five minutes' notice. And you know all all of these sorts of considerations. And when you join the BBC, there are guidelines around all of these issues that you have to stick to. Now, you know what you might be talking about is the fact that some publications have a particular slant um, and a, you know, a particular way of looking at, at stories. Um, headlines are there to grab attention. I would always sort of urge people who are upset about something in the paper just to look beyond the headline. It's often the headline that upsets people. Um, that's really just there to grab your attention. Um, you need to actually look to see what the story says itself. But... Yeah, there there is some ill-informed reporting out there. It, it's true, and that's partly because, you know, I think reporters are under a lot of pressure. There are fewer reporters, particularly for those sort of mainstream press, than there used to be. Uh, and also, you know, there's there's pressure of time that there wasn't before because everything's being updated all the time. It's not like in the old days when it's just the papers came out late at night and till the next day. Everything's being updated now on the internet and all the rest of it. So I think there are additional pressures there, and those are you know those are probably the 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 key reasons. But unless you, I don't know if you, there's something specific that you can point to. So I guess you know as I said, having just finished writing a thesis, um, sort of in this area and having to dig deep um, into articles because it was comparative study between two tabloid papers, and and so I was sort of seeped in it for quite a long time, and it really was sort of quite shocking. Um, some of the language used, um, which I won't go into because actually it was kind of disgusting. Um, and I sort of thought, my God, not that I would have had one of those papers in my house, but, you know, if my nine-year-old daughter who can read was around, I would be re it would be horrific. She could not read some of this stuff, um, which is why I then got interested to dig further into sort of press regulation and how are these things policed and, you know, and what actually happens if if these articles are out there and they shouldn't have been written in that manner. Um, but I guess sort of, you know, drawing it back to, okay, something that we all might be familiar with. Um, so again, in rape cases with women and women sort of, uh, their sh skirt was too short. Um, you know, the woman was drunk. Um, maybe women should stay at home. But are you re are you talking about a, the reporting of a case? Or well, I are you suppose it's the, you know, the opinion? things you read in the paper and maybe this is where I'm getting it wrong and I need you to... Uh, to guide me. When you read those things, I suppose you're saying the journalist has written it, but someone else was saying it. So the journalist has written that the police were advising women to stay at home. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. It's difficult for me to respond because I'm not sure what you're saying, but uh, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to. But um, it's not an opinion piece, it's a news piece. So are you saying that some of the story, you're, you know, it's obviously when you've got kids and they're beginning to read papers and 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 all the rest of it, then you're very acutely aware of what of what they're picking up on, what they're reading, what they're hearing, watching on TV. Um, but I mean, the 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 
the press should be, you know, reporting what someone said and, you know, or an opinion that someone's had. That's not the fault necessarily of the media no. for reporting that. But clearly, sex, issues around sex sell. People are interested mm. in, someone said to me, sex, money, celebrity are the kind of, you know, scandal, uh, you know, the main things that sort of, you know, that sell papers. Yeah. So yeah. clearly, you know, people are going to pick up on those issues, aren't they? Yeah, And want, totally. to, want to report those issues. Yeah, I guess it's, because um, it is a complicated but really interesting point, isn't it? This sort of, because we have sort of crime and criminal justice and then society's opinions on perpetrators, criminals, victims. And I suppose the angle I'm coming at is, the responsibility on the media um, in all its forms and guises to educate us in an informed uh, way so that actually our judgment about these things isn't entirely skewed, which maybe I'm putting too much responsibility sort of in your direction. No, it's, it, no, in it's sense, difficult. But you're the expert and I'm not. So it's difficult because you want, you know, you want to report what people have said and what things have gone on but also you know stories don't drop down like tablets of stone into the newsroom and you just put them in the paper or you publish them on the website there's a process of selection that goes on in every newsroom what stories are we going to do today and within that process of selection are your judgments which are formed by uh your attitudes and what's of interest and what's of interest to you and if Newsrooms are dominated by men and traditionally white men, you know, middle-aged. They're going to have a particular view about, that, you know, what people want to read or what interests them and, and all the rest of it. So, of course, you know, a lot of, a lot of what you read is kind of skewed by that. It's, 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 there's a subjective selection process. Of course, there are some stories that will be covered if there's a plane crash, it will be covered, you know, and and there's lots of stories like that that will always be covered. But then there's a selection process. Why do we cover that murder of that individual and give that prominence, but not the murder of another person? There's a selection process. There are all sorts of reasons and factors that, that go into that. Some of them may not be to do with your prejudice or your bias. It may just be to do with when something happens or that the victim's family want more coverage for it. There may be all sorts of different reasons, but there is a process of selection. I think that's what you're sort of driving at. Yeah. It's I not objective. <laughs> a lot a lot of people a lot of people were you know, a lot of people kind of watch the news. And when I was young, you kind of watch the news and you think, well, those are the six, seven big stories of the day. You don't think that actually a bunch of people have sat around and decided, right, we're gonna cover uh, the strike by rail workers today, uh, but we're not going to cover this industrial dispute today, or we're going to cover this court case in Cardiff, but we're not going to cover that court case in Newcastle. Yeah. But people making those decisions all the time. And what about when it comes to terminology? How much does that sort of, because I'm sure that shifts and changes. One of my sort of big ones that um, I don't just hate, I think it's just really... Um, it's not right to call a child a child prostitute um, and, you know, sort of you know, the implication of that, like a child can make a decision to be a prostitute and actually it's 
no, that child has been abused by adults or trafficked. So, I mean, that must be a tricky area as well, because terms fall in and out of favour, but then some terms will never be right, actually. Well, I mean, look, the BBC, the BBC's got guidelines and, and there are certain terms that that are used and certain terms that we that shouldn't be used. I don't think the term child prostitute would be used on the BBC. I mean, it's a, it, it's a child abuse victim. Um, but other newspapers may have different guidelines. Um, there are certainly some uh, guidelines that are set more centrally. Um, there was a big debate, I remember, at the BBC about the use of the word terrorist... Um, you know, and terrorism. And I mean, personally, I felt a lot of it was dancing on the head of a pin um, and, you know, used to infuriate me. Um, But that was, you know, you just had to sort of go with the flow. But yes, there is a debate around that. Um, And it is important, I think. I think these things are important. You can take it a bit too far, but I think some of the examples you've given are, are, it's really important to get those terms right. And particularly, I think, you know, we're always sort of told we don't talk about child pornography. We talk about child abuse images um, as one example that, you know, but sometimes people make mistakes. Sometimes people forget, mm. perhaps in a, a live interview or and so on. And that's understandable. You know, you can't sort of police yeah, these can't things. Be on it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. But absolutely with, you know, things that are written and broad, uh, that are recorded, you should try and get it right. And I do think it's important. So um, you've now sort of moved away from the, you know, in the mix with the courts, the police and the prisons. And um, what does life sort of hold for you now? Because I know you're still sort of involved in the in that world. Well, no, I, I, I moved away um, almost a year ago now and I'm, I'm working for a consultancy, so doing some research into criminal justice issues, uh, helping out with some communications issues as well, giving advice to police organisations, criminal justice organisations. So there's a whole sort of different... A variety of things but it's still very much in the criminal justice space and the prison space and it, it's great because it you know I can keep in touch with all those issues that I'm really interested in and think I've got something to contribute to yeah great well it's been lovely talking to you thank you so much enjoyed it, it was just the 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 eight records that you didn't ask for was the only thing <laughs> links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below if you enjoyed listening we would love it if you would subscribe also rate review and best of life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.